starting out getting ready for a new season getting close to that equinox and uh yeah I pumpkin spice is in the air uh I I'm a fan of pumpkin spice uh not you know like fake sugary syrups so much but uh you know ginger cinnamon nutmeg clove cardamom you know you put all those together and uh and get get some pumpkin spice flavoring in your hot chocolate or uh, anything really so um yeah anyway I I digress uh but speaking of new seasons um I'm kicking off season five here in my uh you know very arbitrary uh selection of making seasons out of these episodes um yeah so this is uh season five episode one and we're going to kick off this new season uh, with the Rose Metal Press Field Guide to Graphic Literature, Artists and Writers on Creating Graphic Narratives, Poetry, Comics, and Literary Collage. Uh, so this is a, a really a fantastic field guide. Um, it's, a, it's a beautiful book, and I'm going to share a few selections from it with you. And so let's, let's jump right in. This first one I'm going to read is Drawing a Breath, Abstraction, Minimalism, and Lines in Comics by Leonie Briley. When I began writing Raw Feels, the creative component of my PhD thesis on sincerity in autobiographical comics, I had no idea what I was doing. I had never made a comic longer than a few pages, and the sheer panic at what hubris had gotten me into the situation where I was supposed to make an entire book out of comics was palpable, to say the least. The locus of my anxiety was around not being able to draw, or, more specifically, not being able to draw the same thing over and over again and from different angles such that it was recognizable, that thing being a character in my graphic novel, that character being me. To be honest, the idea of drawing myself over and over again evoked even more dread. Who or even what am I, and how do I draw that in a way that doesn't fill me with self-loathing? I had two revelations. One, drawing is problem-solving, and two, drawing is breathing. I had, and perhaps still have, a lot of anxiety around the buildup of lines, of ruining a drawing by going too far. It became obvious that the simpler and more straightforward I could make my approach here, and to drawing in general, the easier it was going to be. So I learned how to draw myself with as few lines as possible. 
Initially, this felt like laziness, like giving up too soon, like not trying hard enough. But then I decided, who gives a shit? This is enough. This one line here, it says all I need and want it to say. I needed to trust in the line and surrender to the idea that a single line could hold the weight of the emotion I was trying to convey. The way into this revelation, or this problem-solving, involved the second revelation, that drawing is breathing. The idea that drawing is breathing returns us to the anxiety of facing a blank page, returns us to our body, where the anxiety is felt physically, as tension, as hesitation. The only way through this anxiety was to return to the breath, to become aware of how I was breathing, to concentrate only on that. This focus on the breath while I was drawing also allowed me to focus not so much on what I was drawing, but on what was happening while I was drawing. The thing is, I actually love drawing. I love the movement of a pen on paper, and I've loved this movement since as far back as I can remember. As a kid, I used to spend all day drawing, even filling notebooks with looping E's, because I thought this was cursive writing. This gets me closer to yet another revelation, that drawing, or more specifically cartooning, is a kind of handwriting. Cartoonist Chris Ware has said about peanuts, Every day for half a century, millions of people learned to read Charles Schultz's handwriting. There's also that bit in Scott McCloud's Understanding Comics, where an audience member points out that McCloud's working definition of comics is also a definition of words. Quote, juxtapose static images in deliberate sequence, end quote. Letters themselves are an abstract representation of speech and thought. Kenneth Cox's The Art of the Possible, comics mainly without pictures, was another revelation along these lines. Cox's comics are essentially poems or stories in the shape of a comic, i.e. something like a grid. They have names like Kenya Comics, or Bus Comics, or Stopping Off for Death and Life Comics. We have only the words, their shape, their rhythm, their feeling, and our own imaginations. The format and rhythm are kinetic and exhilarating. They're pure comics with no images. But there are images. The images are vivid and interesting, subtle and poignant, completely absent and fully present in the mind at the same time. This is what comics, and good writing in general, should do. Leave enough space for the mind of the reader to complete them. It started to become clear to me that the more space I left around the lines I was making, the more space I had to breathe, to trust that the lines that were there were doing all that they needed to. There was a huge amount of freedom in realizing this. I'm still unsure whether a line is an exhalation on the page, or whether the blank page itself is an exhalation, waiting for the inhalation of a line. I think the two switch roles frequently, and this is how it should be. Drawing, ha, attention to the breath, is a way of returning to our body, which is a way of returning to the page, of being aware of the gesture of drawing while we're making that gesture. Mirka Mora, the late French-born Australian visual artist, has a drawing that is a box of tight, looping, slightly overlapping lines with the caption, half an hour breathing. This image feels like a comic. I also think of Cameron Robbins' wind drawings, drawings of varying scales produced by a machine that translates the movement of the wind into pen on paper. 
The mechanism is designed to be sensitive not only to wind speed and direction, but also to pre precipitation and sunlight. The lines in the drawings themselves fluctuate in coherence and shape. Sometimes the lines are short and choppy, but built up into circles, ears, and shells, beautifully dense and simple drawings. The way these drawings track movement across time in a single page, their vibrancy, their presence, makes me think of comics, of taking down in ink on paper what is otherwise ethereal. The language of comics is especially suited to getting down with pen on paper what is otherwise out there, or not necessarily physically visual. Thought balloons and the sweat beads flying off Charlie Brown's head of translating visually, physically, what is felt or thought, what is abstract or beyond immediate grasp. The term Raphael's is one I took from philosophy, more specifically phenomenology, and is used to describe the what it is like of certain aspects of existence, such as pain, smelling a rose, or witnessing a sunset. Philosophy of Painting by Shi Tao, translated by Earl J. Coleman, is another book I read around the time a lot of these revelations occurred. Shi Tao's Philosophy of Painting is deeply rooted in Taoist philosophy and the idea of the form of formlessness. His philosophy of painting itself focuses on the clarity and elegance of a single brushstroke. The oneness of strokes is the origin of all beings, the root of myriad forms. The word stroke has more dynamic and intimate connotations than line or mark, and the translators of Shi Tao's treatise are quick to point this out, so I'm hesitant to transfer this idea entirely over to the making of comics. But this idea and appreciation of the minimal, that simplicity can contain and express complexity, is one that is often lacking in Western thought and one that brought me a lot of comfort. The excerpt I've included here is from the end of a section in Raw Feels called Drawing Two, where, after having drawn the same thing, myself, over and over again, I break down the act of drawing line by line, panel by panel, and essentially explode myself. I was thinking about each line, each mark, as a unit of a whole, and a whole unto itself. It wasn't the image itself that was the final product, but the cumulative act of drawing each line. The process was the product. Each line felt momentary, fragmentary, but also complete. Already my way of representing myself felt fragmented, gappy. Wherever a line didn't meet with another line, it felt like there was permeable space there. It started to feel like the white space on the page and the inhale of my breath held space for lines, for my exhales, and unified the two, allowing the fragmentary, momentary nature of being to exist as a whole at the same time as being in pieces on the same page, to be present and absent. This idea of getting at the essence of all things brings me back to the primacy of breath, that ultimate life force. Comics as a medium is tied inextricably to breath. The speech balloon is the iconic symbol in comics. The only way I know how to approach abstraction and minimalism in comics is to focus on the physical act of drawing, the breath in my body, and my body and breath on the page, to enjoy making a line for the sake of it, in the same way that simply breathing or noticing one's breath is a way of enjoying, or at least being aware of, being alive. Not for the larger drawing or image it contributes to, but for itself as a line, as a container of feeling, of life. Exercise. Focus on your breath. 
Breathe in and out eight times. Look at the blank page and your pen. Try not to have any expectations for what kind of mark you're going to make or how this page will end up looking. Before a weightlifter lifts, they inhale and brace. Before you pick up the pen, inhale and brace. Now exhale a line. A line as long and steady or unsteady as your exhale. Build up a rhythm or pattern between the two, inhaling the page and exhaling lines. Do that for as long as it feels good. Now think about drawing a line that you enjoy, a shape or pattern, a gesture that makes your body sing while you make it. Make that line, those shapes, for as long as it feels good. Now think about different elements. Think about the wind. Think about earth. What lines are the wind? What lines earth? What is the difference between them? Exhale a word or phrase that's been on your mind next to the lines you've made. What is the relationship between them? How do different lines of words or images tell the same story? One thing to remember is they come from the same source, your breath. Comics Magic, The Poetics of Page Design by Trinidad Escobar I was a skinny brown girl with a bowl haircut and glasses, curled up on my parents' circular bohemian sofa when I read William Carlos Williams for the first time. This is just to say, left my mouth cold and slick, as if I had just eaten the plums that were in the icebox. I was no longer on my couch. I was in another time and place. I felt the heaviness of the red wheelbarrow glazed with rain in the red wheelbarrow and thought, this must be magic. Children tend to believe in magic. However, I must admit that I have never let go of the concept. In fact, I see it everywhere in the similarities between poetry and comics. Stephen King once said that books are a uniquely portable magic a form of technology that transmits an author's thoughts to readers across time and space. Poems contain their own highly concentrated form of magic. The experience of images in prose and poetry affecting our momentary reality is adjacent to another experience that some cartoonists call comics magic. Comics magic is a combination of experiences. Being transported, just as a reader can be transported through prose, and seeing the illustrations themselves come to life. It is the experience of reading a graphic novel in under an hour and walking away with a vibrant understanding of a character's emotions and journey. Constructing the page by considering the areas of overlap between poetics and comics craft elements can evoke comics magic. The graphic novel is more closely related to a collection of poetry than a novel when it comes to the composition of the page. Cartoonists, like poets, can guide the reader's eyes in various directions across the page. The silence and negative space count just as much as the words and symbols. 
Too many words on the page can dilute the power of certain images in a poem, and too many words on the page in a comic can pull a reader out of the story. Cartoonists and poets leave only the text necessary to convey an intended aesthetic, mood, idea, and or story. Both media can induce sound. Poets can make a reader hear coins falling using line breaks that seem to clink down the page. Cartoonists can achieve the illusion of sound with moment-to-moment panel transitions and emanata, those small marks that indicate sound, texture, movement, and emotional states. I sometimes approach comics' tiers, or individual rows of panels, as poetic lines that have opportunities for enjambment, a continuation of a sentence onto the next line without a pause. Enjambment is often used in poetry to create multiple meanings within single sentences. A panel in comics can have more than one meaning if it is strategically placed. Enjambment in comics can also be used to keep up rhythm or interrupt it. At the end of certain forms of poems, such as sonnets, is a volta, an insight or a turn in the speaker's thinking or perspective. Comics may contain voltas, too. The poet may develop an idea line by line leading up to said volta. But even with a long-form poem, the poet typically does not consider the more literal kind of turn that comics artists often depend on. The page turn. A page turn allows for a dramatic pause, a moment of suspense, and it's important to plan and pace your pages accordingly. This is why cartoonists often create scripts with written narration, dialogue, notes on art direction, and descriptions of the illustrations for every panel. By looking at the whole, we can plan each page turn, every splash page, and each two-page spread to ensure these layouts will work on the reader like magic. Mariko and Jillian Tamaki's Skim elicits comics magic masterfully, with tremendous control over page design. These creators manage to take readers along a young character's coming-of-age story without the mood-inducing benefits of color. The book is entirely grayscale. This means that the creators had to judiciously construct panels that zoom in on the character's clenched fists and slightly furrowed brows to communicate mood. They used high contrasts of shadows and light, varied line weights, and inset panels to create atmosphere as well. They further anchor the story in the character's rich emotional experience by using rolling panels. Readers move from the material world at the top of a page to an inner emotional landscape by the time we reach the bottom. They stack panel tiers depicting the mundane and lonely trivialities of adolescence leading to a splash page, a dramatic page with one large image or panel with diary text superimposed on a minimalist image of birds flying in the air. The diary text tells us that the character is trying to make sense of an intense spiritual experience, but we do not know what this experience is until we turn the page and land on a wordless two-page spread that contains a big reveal. This is how the magic works. In my graphic memoir, Crushed, I carefully designed pages and turns to depict the turbulent world around and inside of my main character. Nicole is a Filipino-American adoptee who struggles with PTSD, and she has returned to the Philippines to reconnect with her family and learn about her roots, however painful. Haunted by an unknown ghost, she questions her mental health. I paired words and real-world images, such as drinking glasses and a small hut, with words and images depicting internal environments informed by memory and trauma, such as an underwater sequence with the mysterious appearance of a mermaid. 
The excerpt provided here starts off with the main characters in present time drinking alcohol. By this point, the reader has seen the characters drinking together and doing what drunk people do, argue and cry. I used bubble emanata over the characters' heads to communicate inebriation. The visually rendered dizzying or foggy effect suggests the main character may not be in an ideal state to listen to an emotional story. Her struggling mental health and intoxication add to the tension and confusion that the character experiences as a story about her birth unfolds. I then transition to a flashback, starting with a splash page with inset panels. The mother character speaks slowly, her words drifting above the inset panels, stringing along the main character who clenches her glass of brandy in her hand. This splash page invites the reader to take a big breath as the flashback begins. I don't use words to describe the storm. I let the waves and rain do the work and draw the eye to the small hut on the edge of a cliff. The tail of the speech bubble, the rain, and the waves point to the house. I use the sound of torrential rain breaking through a palm leaf roof, as the incessant score that the readers can hear even when the words disappear because it works in conjunction with the thin white lines representing water. The water line rises panel to panel from under the mother's arms to just under her chin. When the rain lines disappear as the father character, Marco, descends into the water, so does the sound. A series of action-to-action panels speeds up parts of the scene. I take a few panels to show how far down in the water he has to go, to the bottom of the page. He has a moment of silence before being surprised by an entirely different sound when he reaches the bottom. By placing the sound at the bottom, the design encourages the reader to stick with the story to find out who is speaking. The type design for the sound might also create an underwater sound effect in the reader's imagination. The scene climaxes on the next page with an oversized panel portraying the unexpected appearance of a mermaid who, after the tension has been building and water has been rising, saves the characters with a whoosh, a final release. The characters' lives are in danger, then there is a turn of events, a kind of volta that not only changes the outcome, but also changes the significance of the story for Nicole. The reader's mind may go in many directions. Is this mermaid a figment of the father's imagination, the mother's, the main characters, a symbol for the unexplainable? The poetic tension built by the elements on each page and the turns make the mermaid a welcome impossibility while simultaneously adding to the ongoing questions for the main character. Can memory be trusted? Can she trust her own mind? However, the reader doesn't have to make any judgments by the end of the final page of this excerpt. The mermaid is shown to the reader, but the characters do not exchange words about her after these panels. The ambiguity that the reader is left to ponder creates an emotional connection with the character's own explorations of her mental health and interactions with the supernatural. This is comics magic. Exercise. Create a two-page comic. The first page is recto, a right-hand page that ends with a page turn. Your character has a secret object. Maybe this is a locket with photos of their parents inside. Maybe it is a weapon used in a murder. Make a six-panel grid. Use words to demonstrate how your character rationalizes keeping the secret without naming the object. Draw images that show the character in the act of hiding or concealing without showing the object. Take up the entire first page to make magic by tapping into our senses. 
Make us hear the world by using emanata. Show the quick or slow passage of time with action-to-action or moment-to-moment panel transitions. Show us that your character is scared, nervous, or sad. Use contrasts of light and dark to communicate secrecy and emotion. Experiment with forms of enjambment as you move down the tiers. Lead the reader to the page-turning final panel, a panel that leaves them wanting to know more. Then, think of the dramatic turn of the poetic volta, and, as your reader turns the page, show them the secret, the big reveal, as one big panel, a verso, left-hand, splash page. Material Losses, Collage Comics as Elegy, by Mita Mahato. I started making comics when my mother died in 2007, channeling my grief and its associated confusions into images that I could frame, caption, rearrange, throw away, revise, or choose to share. Comics gave me a platform to express my multi-layered experience of her death, and to make sense of the simultaneous sadness, pain, anxiety, and release that I felt. When I started adding collage elements to my comics, a range of additional narrative and emotional planes opened up for me. Taking a scrap of paper from the recycling bin and seeing it transform through processes of cutting and pasting helped me to engage my grief actively. Cut paper, collage, and grieving all became fundamental to my creative practice. I gravitate toward the medium of newsprint in particular to make my collage comics in a process that pauses on and revels in the paper's ephemerality. Except for the occasional scrapbook item, newsprint is not made with collections or keepsakes in mind. Its purpose is to inform its dwindling audiences of relatively recent events and to advertise fads, services, or vacations. Then it passes into oblivion. The ease of access to online news, editorials, and advertising will likely make paper news obsolete altogether. It is a dying medium. When I hold newsprint, rubbing it between my fingers, I feel its flywing delicacy. My eyes drift across the page, not left to right, but here and there, taking in all those passing words and images of the day. I see faces and limbs and suits and shoes, rather than whole figures that refer to real bodies in the world. I see words in isolation that have had different meanings in past times and will have different meanings in future times. Cancer, terror, patriot, polar. I see big patches of background reds, yellows, and grays, with foregrounds that sell ideas about perfume or jewelry or internet service providers. All those pinks and greens and blues catch my eye far more than any object for sale that car, those shoes, that kitchen appliance. There is something nourishing about looking past the advertised object to the fibers, the colors, and the shapes that the paper holds. In touching newsprint's ephemerality, I touch what passes in it, and I breathe. Then I cut. Then I paste. I cut decaying headlines, bylines, captions, and photos, ordering and reordering them like puzzle pieces, 
I carve shapes from those big patches of background colors, hands, feathers, waves, stars, and include them in the puzzle. In this recycling and replacing, collage both celebrates and obviates the ephemerality of newsprint. Sister to comics, collage imagines conversations between and across words and images. Constructed upon spatial and temporal gaps, think of the gutter spaces separating panels in comics or the multiple origins of the paper materials used in collage. Both media encourage us to create story out of dissonance and meaning out of fragments. I give a human torso the limbs of a cow and the head of a bird. Long red dragon tails that I've cut from a department store advertisement replace the darker stripes in a black and white photograph of an American flag. I layer shapes on top of shapes on top of shapes to make a rainstorm. Collage resurrects multiple voices, gathering a bustling crowd of lost and found signifiers. Each paper element speaks of somewhere else and becomes something else in its new context. Collage treats newsprint as a growing medium, collaborating and combining words and images in unexpected relationships. The language I'm borrowing here is feminist theorist Donna Haraway's. In Staying with the Trouble, her book-length response to ecological devastation, she writes, We require each other in unexpected collaborations and combinations, in hot compost piles. Haraway's hot compost piles, her means of celebrating kinship among plants, animals, and objects during this era of catastrophic planetary losses, is akin to what I see in collage. Collage makes the ephemeral compostable, reusable in a new form. Collage sees our dying matter and provides the circumstances for its collective transformation. Because displacement, loss, and metamorphosis are fundamental to collage, it gives me the means to engage, reflect upon, and reimagine themes of environmental loss in my comics. The Extinction Limericks, shared here, is a series that approaches the limerick as an elegy, the limerick's most common first line, there once was, links it to remembrance. In order to mourn animals that have gone extinct in the wild due to capitalist habits and policies of consumption. By adding collage elements, I transform the quick sing-songy lyric into a dirge. The newsprint I use takes part in a similar transformation. I cut shapes from the orange background of an airline ad to make the stripes of a Javanese tiger, the gray sky of a photograph of a politician waving both arms serves as the material from which I carve the semblance of a river dolphin. A portion of a holiday sweater in an announcement for a weekend sale is the tiny beak of an ox pecker riding upon its symbiotic partner, the black rhino. That amusing newsprint, let alone what the original context of this newsprint is, is not apparent in the final collages. However, if you look closely at the image of the rhinoceros, you will see traces of written lines and a photograph from the article printed on the underside of the scrap of newsprint that I used to make the animal. These artifacts, along with the shadow lines between paper layers captured by the scanning process, hint at another life. The written limericks contribute to this feeling of materials fragmented or cut away from or cut short. They are unfinished, composed of only first lines. There once was... Will readers familiar with the form finish the limerick in their minds, or will they sit silently with the silenced animal? In enacting both possibilities, the extinction limericks echo a grieving process. We want and can even imagine continuation, but are met with a close. 
I would much rather cut short our habits of consumption rather than see the end of these animals' existences. Like grief and like composting, collage is slow, contemplative work. It is work that both wanders, inviting us to pause on this word here and that image there, and wonders, asking, what was this image? What could it be still? Collage, despite dwelling in loss, avoids cynicism by teaching us that there is something joyful in loss with its promise of transformation. The oscillation between ending and imagination is the burden and pleasure of collage. Collage asks us to sit in the fragments that embody our losses as we find them in new combinations, perspectives, and ways of making art in the world. Exercise. To make your own elegy collage, you'll need the following. 1. Paper. As I've described here, newsprint is a great choice, but you could also use clothing catalogs, maps, receipts, or grocery store flyers. Pages from old illustrated books are also good fodder for this exercise. 2. A topic. Since the exercise centers on elegy, think of a situation or experience associated with loss. The topic can be personal, social, or planetary. It could involve the memory of something from your childhood, the death of a pet or plant, the end of a relationship, the closing of a neighborhood business, the results of an election, the loss of an object, the disappearance of a horizon line. There are many possibilities. 3. Paste or a glue stick, scissors, and a blank sheet of paper. The process. 1. Lay out the paper materials you're using on a surface and take a moment to sit with them. With your topic in mind, pick up a scrap and run your fingers over it, taking in any words, images, and colors, and feeling the paper's texture. Think of how the materials speak to you of their losses and how your own losses show up in them. 2. Move on to tearing and cutting. Cut out images that stand out to you. Are there colors that are striking? Are there shapes you see? Cut them out. To help guide your choices, think in terms of the feelings and moods associated with the loss you are representing, rather than the story you associate with it. 3. Keeping your topic in mind, spread out your cut and torn pieces and begin moving them around, puzzling and pasting them to your blank page. Allow for surprise and make space for wonder. It's okay not to use all of the pieces. Part of this process involves the decision to leave out some elements as you construct an image that holds your loss. 4. In the extinction limericks, the addition of the handwritten phrase there once was and the name of an animal turns the image into elegy. What words or lines of poetry could you bring into dialogue with your collage to bring perspective to the loss? Think of leaning on or manipulating traditional or well-known forms like nursery rhymes, pop song refrains, or even knock-knock jokes. Write your words on the page to caption and complete your elegy collage. Roundabout Reality, Digging in the Infinite Archive When the Horse is in Motion, by Eleni Sicilianos. 
You are a walking archive. You carry around a family history, a life history, markers of a national history, and in every cell in your body, a record of animal and even planetary evolution. The word archive is rooted in the Greek, and in modern Greek, archizo still means I begin. It is a word linked not only to origins, but also to systems of rule, think of the ark in monarchy, and of order. Archives have traditionally been kept by those in charge, accessed by those with power, and wielded by those who decide which lineages matter. In short, the people allowed to invent and tell our stories. We often imagine archives as static, but as writers, our work is to set them in motion again. Poets and writers have long known that the richest place to press one's ear is at the gaps in the document, the silent and small spaces between a nation's or a person's recorded events, where lives have been left behind. As philosopher Giorgio Agamben tells us, there's a non-coincidence between facts and truth, between verification and comprehension, and that is where poetry plays, tending the gaps. That is writing's most exciting dwelling place, shuttling between what we know and what we don't. I always loved rummaging in my mother's closet when she wasn't home, which was often since she was a single mom with a job. Trying on dresses, unfolding letters. There, I learned things that shocked and thrilled me. I see now that these were my first attempts to understand something beyond the stories told to me. The archives, be they official, private, or living, contain a seemingly untamed array of material. Photographs, ledgers of bizarre sales and purchases, scraps of paper, half-memories, family secrets. The private archives, such as our family stories, sometimes feel the wildest. They are hybrid in the way animals are, containing bits of genes from a multitude of arcane and untraceable sources. They defy simplification. My experience of the world and the humans, other animals, plants, and power structures I live among has never felt effortless. I don't know how to reduce these things to symbolic relations. Thus, my writing has always happened in the midst of a ragged willfulness of world. Around 20 years ago, I was working on two books that changed how that shagginess manifested in my work. One was the California poem, and the other was a book about my father, the Book of John. I was carrying around maps, postcards, and photographs of California as I grappled with a long poem about my home state, environmental degradation, and a body's memory. Among other images, I had a postcard depicting the remnants of a plank road, once laid down for wagon trains, now decaying into the Mojave Desert sand, and a timetable that showed me the year the last native speaker of Chumash, Mary Yee, died, 1965, and the year the Santa Barbara song Sparrow went extinct, 1967. These were my writing aids. On a train between Los Angeles and San Diego, a little motion sick, I realized the images were not just outside forces, but were part of the work my imagination and memory were tangling with. This revelation was holding hands with one another. Not a new idea, but new to the way I thought of my own writing process. Research was a way to create work radically open to the world. Thus began a very long experiment in how to orchestrate a conversation among images, letters, documents, handwriting, artwork, 
and other outside sources, to get them to talk to each other in ways that animated the page. Unless it isn't a book that is meant to teach me, say, about the gastrointestinal systems of axolotls, I want drawings and photos to do something more than illustrate the text. I want my images to act as part of the text, albeit a nonverbal part, and thus a kind of suspension of alphabetic language. The page becomes an installation. The book becomes a mobilized space to wander through. At the beginning of Michael Londaci's Collected Works of Billy the Kid, there is, we are told, a photograph of Billy the Kid with the following caption, excerpted here. I send you a picture of Billy made with the Perry shutter as quick as it can be worked. I am making daily experiments now and find I am able to take passing horses at a lively trot square across the line of fire, bits of snow in the air, spokes well defined, some blur on top of the wheel but sharp in the mane, men walking are no trick. I shall show you what can be done from the saddle without ground glass or tripod, many of the best exposed when my horse was in motion. This caption is below a black-lined frame. But inside the frame, there is, in fact, no photograph. There is instead a white expanse, a field onto which we throw our scrappy histories of Billy the Kid, about whom very little is known. It is a screen across which the shadows of the imagination are allowed to play, a vacant but activated space, linked to Charles Olson's notion of the open field, and also, strangely, to movement. A photograph is still, but all around its edges are the history, the archives of movement. Here, that stillness has been erased, and we have to fill it in with the movement of language Ondaatje offers us. He tells us that the best shots are taken when one is in motion, and, doubling that action, they seem to be of things that are themselves in motion, too. Deploying images and forms across the page allows us to be in life's motion. Plucked from the archives, suddenly bandits, birds, thoughts, human lives gallop across the screen of the mind. Moving from prose to poetry to photo to blank space, the eye, the body, the mind, shifts to accommodate the new form. And, as we know from Aristotle, from motion we know that something is alive. What I learned in writing those two books and from Ondaatje was critical to my process as I worked on another family history many years later, this time about my mother's mother. This grandmother was a real piece of work. She made her living as a burlesque dancer, a single mother on the road, traveling from nightclub to nightclub with three daughters in tow. Occasionally she married, five times in fact, to a wild cast of characters, a Jewish jazz musician, a bank robber, a black minister, a dwarf. I grew up knowing, as bodily inheritor, her trauma and witnessing her former life through her scrapbook, an old dusty album full of fading black paper with her playbills taped into it. I knew that my book, soon to be titled You Animal Machine, must hold her scrapbook at its heart, since that scrapbook held an essential form of her life. And so the center pages of my book, excerpted here, are blackened too, with photos from her album pages reproduced there. What surprised me, though, was something that happened when I scanned the most iconic photograph of her and examined it in detail. Suddenly, zooming in, with simple technology that had not been available to me before, I scrolled over her lips, her dark eye behind a leopard mask, the beauty mark on her chin. It was both shockingly intimate and scattered, since I was peering not at her whole face, but at granular sections of it. I began to crop the image into small pieces, placing them as signposts along the way in the text. 
They allowed me to think about her bodily and geographical movements, and by extension what parts of herself she'd left behind or been forced to leave as she moved through her life. They became badges of her wanderings and her female divisibility, the split between autonomy and her own body. How could I give her back to herself? The reader experiences this photo in morsels until the very end of the book, when we see the leopard girl's photo, journey completed, whole. In these infinite archives, we find life. Exercise. Find or take a photograph of someone or something important to you. Put it away. In the next few hours or weeks or days, write everything you remember about it. Take out the photograph again. Look. Annotate. What are all the things you left out when you wrote about it without looking? What are the things outside of the frame? Who might have taken the photograph? What would happen if everything in the photo kept moving? What were the larger cultural and political events of the time? Write about those. Scan the photograph and expand it. Focus on one little part. Get granular. As you think about how to place the image in the context of the writing, try it in various sizes and placements. Should it be very small, so that a reader has to squint and get intimate? Should it reside in a corner of the page with an expanse of blank page around it? Should it blow past any margins? How can you bring the movement of the living to this archival material and the way you place it on the page and activate it against other forms, such as writing? It's me, Mr. Bear. Oh, hey, Mr. Bear. Come on in. So good to see you. Oh, yeah, it's good to see you, too. Oh, you've got some beautiful yellow flowers there. Uh, goldenrod, isn't it? It is. Uh, Soledago. Uh, I just, I love Soledago. It's so beautiful. And it's it's everywhere right now. Um, yeah, I know. I see it uh, Yeah, in everybody's yards and in the woods and by the roads and uh, train tracks, and it just, it just, uh, it's, it's everywhere. I know, it's just, it's so beautiful, just, uh, I love seeing fields of goldenrod, just that beautiful yellow color, just stretching out, oh, and the bees love it, and it's such great food for them uh, this time of year, um, yeah, it's, oh, I just, I love goldenrod, um, and Soledago is, there's lots of different species, but the, the general uh, botanical name for all of them is, is Soledago. And yes, I just, I love Soledago. Uh, yeah, I, I can see that. Uh, what's, what's not to love? Exactly, Mr. Bear. Uh, it makes a lovely tea. It makes a wonderful honey, um, a tincture. I mean, it's just, goldenrod is fantastic. Uh, it supports the kidneys and the bladder. Uh, it's very astringent. It can help with diarrhea. Um, it's vulnerary. It can help with wounds. In fact, uh, one of the plants, one of the common names for the plant is woundwort. And wart just means plant. So, you know, something called wound plant means this is a plant they worked with for wounds. Oh, that's uh, really interesting. So yeah, you could make a, a strong tea of it and and um, 
and have that as a as a wound wash or um but yeah just drinking it as a as a tea is lovely uh, i mean make sure you leave some for the bees of course uh, of course we want the bees happy that's right and um if you if you look uh, at uh, goldenrod now i mean it's just the bees are crawling all over it um and so that's um you know, a lot of people think that they're allergic to goldenrod or that it's causing all this pollen in the air. Yeah, I've, I've heard that. I know I know a lot of people who, who say, oh, it's pretty, but yeah, it it's, uh, uh, gives me allergies. And I mean, anybody can be allergic to anything, but goldenrod is not pollinated by the wind. It doesn't have pollen just blowing around. Its its pollen is really heavy. It's pollinated by the bees, um, which you can see because it's crawling with the bees. Um, but at the same time, this year, um, this time of year around a goldenrod, ragweed is in bloom at the same time. And nobody notices ragweed. It's very inconspicuous, you know, just blends in, just green, the flowers aren't showy, nobody notices it, but ragweed sends its pollen out by the wind, and so most people, um, most people are probably reacting to ragweed, not goldenrod, um, yeah, ragweed just gives goldenrod a bad name, so, you know, I just want to, want to set the record straight, oh, uh, yeah, I hear you, Miss Mousy, and, um, uh, John, John Muir, the the American naturalist, he um he loved goldenrod too, and and uh, I'm gonna read you something he said about it. Okay. Okay. And John Muir said, "The fragrance, color, and form of the whole spiritual expression of goldenrod are hopeful and strength-giving beyond any others I know. A single spike is sufficient to heal unbelief and melancholy. Isn't that wonderful? A single spike." Wow, yeah, just just one spike to get rid of melancholy. Uh, well, I can see that. It's, it's a very cheerful flower. I know, it is. And one of my favorite things to do is, is to, uh, you know, just gather a spike or two and put the, put the flowers in a jar and cover with honey and steep it for about a month and then have a marvelous goldenrod honey. And then you can have that during the winter to bring yourself a little sunshine. Oh, I love love that idea, Miss Mousy. Uh, I think I think I'm gonna do that. Yeah, it's um, you know, it's this time of year. It's such a wonderful time to be uh, preserving things that you can enjoy in the winter and be reminded of summer and connected to summer and and you know to know that it'll it'll come around again. And in the meantime, you know, just uh, you can fortify yourself during the winter. Oh, I love that, Miss Mousy. Well, um, why don't we go outside and have a cup of tea, uh, Mr. Bear, and just, you know, sit in the yard with the goldenrod and the bees and uh, have a little meditation. Oh, that sounds great, Miss Mousy. Let's do it. Oh, and don't don't forget to remind your listeners that I'm just a two-dimensional, hand-drawn rodent studying herbalism, and they should always do their own research. Oh, you got it, Miss Mousy. Um, what about the flower oracle? Oh, yeah, I almost forgot. Oh, thanks for reminding me, Mr. Bear. I can't believe I almost forgot. So the flower oracle, we've got Kate Greenaway's Language of Flowers. I'm just going to paw through and point down. And our flower oracle is cactus. Warmth. Okay, 
uh, warmth. That's a nice, uh, nice oracle this time of year. We've got the warmth of goldenrod and the warmth of September sunshine. Oh uh, yeah, I, l- I like that, Miss Mousie. On um, cactus, you know, uh, I I like a, I like having a cactus around. You know, they make nice, nice house plant pets. Yeah, they do. They kind of, you know, cheer up the place a bit. All right. Well, let's go. Let's go sit with the goldenrod, Mister Bear. Okay. Are you or anyone you know a musician? Amateur, professional, experimental? Do you tell stories with music and song? Are you interested in being considered for a potential feature on Mr. Bear's Violet Hour? If you have answered yes to any of these questions, please send samples of your work, links to Bandcamp, SoundCloud, your website, digital demo tape files on Google Docs, whatever you have, to violethourmoon at gmail.com. And that's the show, folks. Thanks so much for spending a little time with me in the Violet Hour. I hope you enjoyed hearing those excerpts from the Field Guide to Graphic Literature. Um, There are lots more uh, essays, examples, exercises in this book. Um, So it's the Rose Medal Press Field Guide to Graphic Literature, Artists and Writers on Creating Graphic Narratives, Poetry, Comics, and Literary Collage. And yeah, that was just a small sampling. So you can get your your paws on your own copy at rosemetalpress.com. And uh, yeah, and, and enjoy. There's, you know, all of these... Uh, all of these artists, there's examples of their work and more information about them in here too. So you can enjoy that and, and try out the exercises and, and making some of your, your own uh, comics and graphic literature. So rosemetalpress.com. On before you go as a parting gift as always. I've got, uh, I've got the oracle from Norton Jester's The Phantom Tollbooth for you. So I'm going to paw through. Point down and read a passage. He stretched lazily, rubbed his eyelids, scratched his head, and shivered once as a greeting to the early morning mist. I'll read that one more time. He stretched lazily, rubbed his eyelids, scratched his head, and shivered once as a greeting to the early morning mist. That's your oracle. Interpret as you will. Um... That's all I've got for you today. Thanks again for being here with me. I'll be back with you uh, later on, end of the month, around the full moon. So until then, take care and be kind to each other. Theme song and show music by Sugar Whiskey. Mr. Bear and Miss Mousie believe in radical love and kindness, in mutual aid, and empowering ourselves and our communities. Together we can dismantle the white, racist, colonizing, misogynistic, capitalist, homophobic, transphobic, ableist patriarchy. This podcast was recorded on Potawatomi, Kickapoo, Miami, Sioux, and Peoria land. Text your zip code or city comma state to 907-312-5085 and find out whose land you're living on. Uh, You can also go to land.codeforanchorage.org. 
for more information. There's also a helpful map at native-land.ca. This is just the first step in developing a land acknowledgement. Let's learn our history and honor the land and indigenous peoples, past, present, and future. This podcast was produced in collaboration with the Boston Free Radio Podcast Network, part of bostonfreeradio.com and Somerville Media Center, Somerville's longest-running public access media center that enables a vibrant and diverse community to express its creativity, explain its ideas, share its cultures, and foster the individual right to freedom of speech. Learn more about Somerville Media Center at somervillemedia.org or check out some of the other amazing Boston Free Radio podcasts and radio shows at bostonfreeradio.com. Thanks for listening.